Welcome to another episode of Becoming Referrable, the podcast that helps you be the kind of advisor people can't stop talking about. I'm Julie Littlechild, and on this week's show, Steve and I speak with Kevin Quigg. Now, Kevin is the chief strategist for Exponential ETFs, and he's also a driving force behind the first financial advisors report from the American Customer Satisfaction Index. We talked to Kevin about the connection between customer satisfaction and investment performance, which was a really fascinating conversation. But then we did a deep dive into the financial advisor research. We asked him about the new research, asked him about the trends that he's seeing related to customer satisfaction with advisors. And then we looked at what all of that means for your business going forward. He told us which elements of client service are really table stakes for clients and which aspects of the client experience really set one advisor apart from another. And with that, let's get straight to our conversation with Kevin. Well, Kevin, welcome. So happy to have you here today. Yeah, welcome, Kevin. Thank you both for having me. Pleasure to be here. Well, you know, we're... uh, Originally, when we were looking at talking to you, we wanted to make sure we talked about the results of this new study that has come out that looks at advisors and client satisfaction. But but maybe before we just jump right into that, we could start with a quick introduction to you, to your role at Exponential ETFs. And, and I'd love it if you could also draw, maybe connect the dots between all of that and this American Customer Satisfaction Index that we're going to be talking about. Sounds good. So uh, my background, I've been in finance for about 25 years, uh, the last 18, I suppose, in the ETF industry. Uh, Exponential ETFs, as the name obviously implies, is an exchange-traded fund provider. Uh, Really, myself and my business partner, Phil Bach, come from uh, large institutions that have been in the ETF business for quite some time. I've had the opportunity to sort of work with the financial advisors and, and the people that they serve. And really, our goal with Exponential was to create an organization that's more reflective, to your point, Julie, of, of you know customer satisfaction, of an organization where we don't just have the investment solutions, but we also back it up with some of the information education material that you know we really feel people enjoy. And as technology has overtaken the marketplace, we're, we're able to provide. So with respect to ACSI, the American Customer Customer Satisfaction uh, Index. We actually have been partnered with them for about two and a half years. We are really the investment management arm for the American Customer Satisfaction Index. Uh, that organization was founded in the early 90s out of the University of Michigan by our firm's founder, uh, Kleiss Burnell. And really, our, our passion is customer satisfaction. I mean, I think you hit upon it. Life is a people business, right? In finance, we sort of tend to dwell on the numbers and, and, and the statistics and things that are more readily available. But at the end of the day, you know, particularly for financial advisors, it's, it's, you know, they're, they're both artists as well as scientists, right? They need to understand the financial marketplace, but more importantly, understand what makes their clients satisfied because that at the end of the day is what leads to more business above and beyond returns and performance, which I think is surprising to some, but, but not to others. And, you know, we at ACSI and Exponential ETFs have really focused our time and effort in understanding what drives satisfaction, what makes people happy, what makes, makes people more likely to buy a good or service from someone. Well, I think what's so fascinating to me is being able to draw this connection between customer satisfaction and things like 
investment performance and 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 within an advisory business growth. But you know, because satisfaction is is obviously something what people would say. Of course, uh, that's a goal. Of course, that's what I want to achieve. But the reality is, sometimes we need to look at at the the direct correlation between that and and the business. So. I was really interested to learn about how you guys use customer satisfaction as an investment metric. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that works and and what the outcomes are? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think you you hit upon the main point, right? I think it's intuitive to most people that obviously if your customers are satisfied relative to their other choices, that leads to a better business result. So, you know, Amazon is probably the chief company that sort of has been satisfaction driven, and rather than focusing again on those traditional financial metrics, they focus more on customer satisfaction. Now, where the the challenge lies is in quantifying that because the the benefit of most traditional financial information is it's readily a available because it's backwards looking, right? So price to earnings or how many goods or ser- services you've sold or things like that, those all look backwards. Satisfaction, the reason that we find it to be a really effective measure of future fi- financial performance is because it's forward looking. So, you know, rather than capture kind of what people have done or what has happened in the past, what we try and do as an organization is really capture the current sentiments of, of uh, consumers and really better understand. And it's a, obviously a fairly complex process that delves into a lot of different areas. But what we want to find out is who are the companies that they're most satisfied with? Because again, statistically speaking, they themselves are more likely to use that company in the future. This is really where I think it ties into your podcast. There also more likely to refer others to that business or service in the future. And again, as we sort of start to enter the digital age and everybody has access to Twitter and Facebook and all these other forms of social media, you know, how well or poorly you satisfy your customers goes viral. It has the, the, the means of sort of getting out into the marketplace in a way, frankly, that it hasn't ever before. So where a satisfaction traditionally, particularly the way that we quantify it, has been a leading indicator of, of financial results, it's only gaining more power as social media becomes more prevalent in, in, in the world. And I think we've seen that this week with, you know, Facebook has a data breach. Traditionally, that would have been reported in the paper, you know, that afternoon might have had an effect on the markets over, you know, the ensuing days and weeks, but really it's gone viral and it becomes a Immediate. So customer satisfaction, and again, that data breach is, is really a really fancy way of saying they breached their consumer confidence, right? So they breached their customer satisfaction. All of a sudden, they went from a business where we provide a pretty good service for our customers, so our main challenge is bringing in new customers, to one where all of a sudden retaining existing customers because of poor satisfaction has become something that's a real issue for them. It's really interesting. It's almost like social media is like a, a fuel, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's, it's created, uh, it's, it's like you say, it's made it all the more powerful, which is, which is kind of a fascinating concept generally for advisors, I think. Well, and I think it's a, it's a double-edged sword, right? So, so you're right. It can work both ways where, <laughs> unfortunately, I think it, we've all experienced this. Negative experiences tend to you know, be magnified greater than positive experiences, and maybe as humans, we're geared that way. But to your point, you're right. I mean, technology, right, has sort of infiltrated our, our, our world, and everybody has a platform to let their feelings and thoughts and you know, kind of uh, how satisfied they are be known. And everybody has, you know, the means to sort of socialize what they're feeling about their advisor very quickly. And, and you know, 
oftentimes it happened with Wells Fargo a couple of years ago where the organization, not the financial advisor organization, nothing to do with the people that were you know, managing assets for, for their clients, but the bank itself had a disruptive event where they were you know, found having done some things that were less than above board. And that had an impact, frankly, you know, on the, the advisor marketplace, right? On those folks that were using Wells Fargo. Now, really the, the way around that would be through customer satisfaction, because at the end of the day, whether you're at Mel's Far- Wells Fargo or Merrill Lynch or Raymond James or LPL or any of the other you know, financial advisors, your relationship with your clients, how well or poorly you satisfy their needs is really what's going to lead to your long-term results. And I think our study backs that up pretty well. Yeah. And Kevin, if I could tease apart a couple of things, are you, are you using customer satisfaction as one of the criteria for what you put in the portfolio within the ETF? Because I'm hearing both yeah, so things that sound like that, as well as uh, satisfaction with advisors. Well, so our, our ACSI, uh, Customer Satisfaction ETF, ranks our companies based upon the proprietary data that we gather on their customer satisfaction with those organizations. So we weight based upon satisfaction. And so those companies whose customers, you know, again, have, have let us know that their relative degree of satisfaction is higher than their competitors, those companies get more highly weighted. Uh, the inverse is true, obviously. Companies and industries who who rank lower get lesser weighting within our products. And and relevant to the to the uh, social media mention that we we're making before, you know, it's it's obviously more relevant because now individual consumers have a much broader platform to project their good or bad experiences on through social media. But do you find that uh, that also translates into um, a higher turnover in the in the portfolio? Because because uh, because thanks to social media. Uh, public feel, public sentiment about cus- customer satisfaction can change faster. Yeah, the way the y- it's a good question. So the way we look at satisfaction tends to be a little deeper. So there's a concept known as elasticity, and essentially it is how easy is it to move from one provider to another, and that obviously affects industries. So whereas you have lunch every day, and it's pretty easy to change, you know, where you go to lunch every day, you buy a car on average once every three years. So a negative event happening at Ford Motor Company, for example, is going to be more muted, for lack of a better term than, you know, Chipotle, right? Having having a, a health scare. Because again, the, literally the next day, Chipotle's consumers can, you know, enact on that kind of customer satisfaction experience. Whereas, you know, buyers of Ford motor cars, you're, you're not going to see that until, you know, in the distant future. So we do have obviously several factors of customer satisfaction. They essentially revolve around three things. Number one is customer uh, expectations. Number two is customer experience. And number three is perceived value. So if you think about it, you're when you go to McDonald's versus, you know, Morton Steakhouse, if you get a hamburger at each place, your expectation for that McDonald's burger versus the Morton's burger is going to be substantially less because you probably paid, you know, a fifth as much for it. That's going to, you know, satisfaction is a relative uh, phenomena. So if you go someplace where, you know, the the expectation is much higher, uh, they have to sort of raise that bar in order for you to, to have a good experience with them. That bar is not quite as high for something that's more low cost. And again, there's, there's lots of phenomena like that within the marketplace. But what we try and do is on the one hand, measure overall customer satisfaction, understanding that we don't just get our information from social media, because again, that tends to be the sort of loudest and proudest people behind goods and services. We want to get really the the thoughts and uh, opinions of the entire American public. Because oftentimes, and you saw that with Bank of America, you saw that with Chipotle, you've seen that with several companies, the initial impact on social media and the initial impact in the media wasn't quite as strong on the stock 
because again, those industries had varying levels of elasticity. But also, if you are a Wells Fargo, uh, you know, uh, client to their financial advisory service, any sort of you know um, problem or challenge they had within their mortgage services or their traditional banking services didn't touch you. So, you know, while as you may have heard about it and it may have had a, a negative impact on your overall view of that company, you know, it, it didn't have near the impact it did on someone directly affected. And we want to make sure that, you know, when looking at Wells Fargo as a large organization, for example, we have a good view on, on how that's going to impact them, not just immediately, but over the long term. It's it, it's so interesting. And I have another couple of questions just on the work that you're doing there. But as you're talking I, I can hear how all of this is so relevant also for advisors thinking about their business. Because I think the, you know, the same issues apply, right? Expectations, value, experience. I mean, those that's three great categories for, for advisors to be thinking about. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed in, in financial advisory data is that uh, value ratings tend to be much lower. Like if you literally look at value relative to fees paid, for example, very hard to get a high rating on that relative to say satisfaction. Is that is value a a, a more aspirational, a, a higher standard to set in some ways? It is, and it's also obviously very relative to to the you know absolute cost of the item, right? So again, you're, yeah. you're yeah. if you're going to a private bank, for example, as a financial advisor, and they tend to have a higher pricing structure because of the you know reputation of private banks and the you know perception anyway of the suites of services they provide. Your expectation going into that is going to be a bit you know higher. Now, with that being said, your expectation from a cost perspective is probably also higher, and the inverse is yeah. true, right? So if you go to a discount brokerage firm where you're really paying just for the facilitation of trading, your expectation is going to be a lot lower than if you're paying someone to provide financial advice. And you're absolutely right, Julie, in that financial advisors, the, all of these things that we measure are very relevant to them, particularly because unlike you know Chipotle or Ford, where at the end of the day, you have the burrito and you have the car, financial services is an industry of perception, right? So, so in a lot of ways, what, what we and they sell is, is, is intelligence and vaporware, and there's not a physical thing you can look at. So really how well you engage with your prospects and clients, the experience you give them, how well you communicate, how well you message things that are coming up in the future, and how well you sort of listen, really have a, a, a greater impact in this industry than it does in other industries. Because once you buy that Lincoln Mercury, you drive it off the lot, and it's kind of not the problem anymore. When you mm -hmm. work with a financial, you know, a client of financial services, you know, their you know, the, 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 the entire experience is dynamic. So their children will get older and eventually approach college. They will get older and eventually approach retirement. They will eventually get older and start to transition their wealth to their children in the next generation. All of these things as a financial advisor are, are experiences that you need to plan for. They're things that if you want to perpetuate your business into the future, you not just need to, 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 to look at what's going on today, but you need to have a real understanding of your clients and their financial situations and their personal situations and really uh, you know, make their experience reflective of that, not just just sort of the, the the base level experience that they would get from you know a discount broker, for example. Yeah. Well, and let me, let me let me ask a question about that. I'll also take issue with uh, with, with characterizing that as vaporware. It's they I, I, they are selling a, a an a um, an intangible, but it's but you know vaporware is is where you're selling something that doesn't actually exist. So um, I, I think it's a little bit 
a little bit, it's a little bit more real than you may think. But I also think that, that it's not just being in tune with your clients, uh, financial planning needs, but also something that I'm, I'm not, maybe you can comment on to what extent, um, we should be focusing on, um, on the delivery of that. So it's not just what needs your clients have from a planning or investment standpoint, but also what they're looking for in terms of how they interact with you. And, and that being actually a, a in, in a lot of cases, even just as important as the advice that you're delivering to them. What, what are your thoughts about that? Oh, I, I would wholeheartedly agree. And by vapor, Mary, I just meant something not not physically tangible, right? And and to your point, I would argue that you know, in many ways, because of technology, the the nuts and bolts, and the selecting securities, and the building portfolios, and the managing taxes, et cetera, et cetera, those have in, in a lot of ways become commoditized, particularly, again, as technology has allowed more people to, to easily you know, ingrain that in their business. To your point, the experience, how well you position things, how well you explain things, you know, essentially that relationship with your client, I would argue that's more important than the nuts and bolts. Because again, our, our you know, um, research has shown people aren't nearly as performance sensitive as, as we in the industry would like to think they are. And I think the reason, by the way, we would like to think they are is because that's something we have a per- perceived control over. They're much more sensitive to, to your point, to those sort of soft skills, right? To, to how well or poorly you give them information, how well or poorly you make them feel involved in their own financial future. That, that is the, the different, you know, the, the line of demarcation between advisors who have success and those who are less successful is almost entirely on how well or poorly they, they manage their client relationships, by the way, right. particularly right. in bad times, right? So, and, and, so yeah, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. That didn't mean it. No, no, no. I, I was just going to say like over the past five years, it's been a, a um, you know, a, a heaven of sorts in the financial services industry. <laughs> because, well, because the, the thing that you, again, you have the most perceived control over has done well, that bleeds into your clients. You know, your, your clients may or may not know that the S&P has been up 25%, but they do know that they've been up 26% or what have you. And that gives a perception of their financial advisor doing doing a good job. And, you know, that, that sort of false confidence in a lot of ways that advisors build up through performance really masks a lot of, of the deficiencies in those other areas we talked about. So, so, you know, successful advisors do well when the market's going down, not the inverse. It's easy to be successful in an up market. Go ahead. Sorry, Steve. And, and, and no, and I'll, re- I'll reinforce what you were just saying about, about what people really appreciate. I'm, I'm right now in the thick of, of client advisory board season. And so, you know, we've, we've been asking a lot of, a lot of advisory boards, you know, what is it that you, of all the things that your advisor does and how they do them for you, what do you find most valuable? And, and they say things like, um, they have a great Rolodex. They can refer me to people that will solve my other needs, and and that they call they they return my phone calls really fast, and that you know, um, you know those kinds of things. And and so sometimes we'll do an exercise where we sort of lay that we we say, okay, well, here's a hundred dollars in fees that your advisor charges you. How how would you apportion all of those things out against this hundred dollar? hypothetical fee. I have to actually remind them, how about investment management? Where, where would you rate that? And, and because they don't come up with, and as soon as I bring it up, they're like, oh, that's the most important, but it's not what they mention when they, when they, when they're asked to list those things uh, unprompted. And the other interesting thing is that um, everybody says investment performance is, is key, maybe most important. But then I, you know, I ask, okay, how many people in the room put up your hand if you've evaluated the last quarterly performance of your advisor compared to any other advisor? And of course, nobody raises their hand. The only thing that they evaluated against is the benchmark the advisor themselves provide. 
um, as a way of comparison. So I, it's, it's, so I, I'm, 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 I'm totally in agreement with you that it's all of those non-tangible, those uh, service-oriented things that really are, are the root of satisfaction as opposed to any of the objective, measurable things that we tend to think about as most important in the advisory relationship. Well, maybe I can just sort of use that to, to get us talking about the study. And, and so, Kevin, what, I mean, what were, tell us about the report, first of all, that was released. Um, I assume this is something that we can just link to. Tell me if I'm wrong on that. <laughs> and uh, maybe some of the key findings. Yeah, it, it is something you can just link to, and it's on the acsi.org is the is right. the website or exponentiallyts.com. But yeah, I mean, really what we were hoping to do is we, we've observed this phenomena in all industries that satisfaction leads to a better result with respect to your clients. We wanted to, to take that from a consistency standpoint and apply it to the financial services industry. So asking the same questions we would someone regarding their car purchase or their mortgage purchase or their, you know, dining purchase, what, what, you know, and obviously modifying it somewhat for, for this industry, but what are those things that they value? So really what we're, I mean, satisfaction is a vague term. What we're looking for is the type of satisfaction that leads to future behavior. Right. So that leads to, to you either working with your advisor more or not working with your advisor and looking for a new one or referring someone, et cetera, et cetera. And really what we found was, and, and I think it's it's fairly, you know, commonsensical in some ways, but those those things that are institutionalized, the ease of opening an account, the website for the for the firm, how easy you can pay your bills, those are across the board excellent. Everybody does those well because, again, they come from the home office and they're things that sort of, you know, tie into opening accounts and their bottom line. Those things are all universally excellent. Where we see separation, which is really what was interesting to me, is really on more what Steve mentioned, those, those people skills, those personalized skills. So how frequently do you contact your, your advisor? What is your communication um, experience like? And then how, how mobile is that relationship? And again, we in financial services don't work in a vacuum, right? So the, the same technology that's taking place in the world where people are moving from desktop to laptop to phone to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that's taking place in our industry too. The opportunity we found for advisors to grow their business, to get more referrals, to be more successful lies in, in that experience, is in how well or poorly are you communicating to your clients? What is the schedule? What are you asking them? What types of information do you have? How open is your relationship? That's a big one. How open is your relationship? Because oftentimes, you know, and, and I know we'll talk about this in a bit, but advisors like to call to get confirmation they're doing a good job. They don't like to call nearly as much when, when you know, things are a little more rough. And that's actually the exact time you should be calling, right? So what we found in the study was, you know, there's an opportunity for advisors that focus on number one in integrating technology into their business, but more importantly, that have an interest in understanding their clients as they go through their life changes. Those are the ones that are going to get referrals and be successful. So you said just uh, before you talked about that, the type of satisfaction that leads to certain behavior. So by that, do you mean what you just said, the difference between satisfaction with the things everybody's satisfied versus where you see a spread or, or was there something else to that comment? No, I, I think that's exactly what it was. So obviously, okay. you know, there's, there's some things that, you know, are common to everyone. And then there's other things where you can sort of zig or zag, right? As an advisor, how frequently you communicate with your clients and what type of pro program you have or process you have to assure that you have ongoing communication, you decide that, right? Your home office doesn't decide that that's something you decide individually. Those are the types of skills that are separating people. What we find, again, is, is those things, and, and by the way, this isn't unique to financial services. It happens in most competitive industries. Those things that can be sort of hardwired or institutionalized are almost always good, 
right? So whether mm-hmm. you are using, you know, Netflix or Hulu, your initial engagement is going to be the same. Signing up is going to be the same. All those things are going to be the same. It's it's underneath that. It's in the experience you have once you're sort of underneath, you know, that that uh, top layer that really differentiates, you know, poor to good to excellent. Are you able to measure, and maybe it's this is a, a different kind of, of research, the the quality of of the interaction so i i you know one can imagine two advisors two clients both meet four times a year one feels entirely engaged during that process the other doesn't so adding a fifth review is not going to help not at all right uh, you know in fact it might hurt so i mean how do you tackle the the very qualitative essence of some of these, these yeah the, the fifth meeting would be your exit meeting probably so, so <laughs> yeah probably <laughs> yeah that's right great um, i hated the first four so yeah <laughs> no honestly to answer your question we try and triangulate that so, you know, again, mm-hmm. one person to another, it's very hard to say on one to 10, what was your experience, right? Because people have different reference points. But what we yeah. can ask is how frequently you're meeting? What is the quality of those interactions? That is a question that we do ask. What was your expectation mm-hmm. with this relationship going into it? How well or poorly did, you know, the advisor meet that expectation, et cetera, et cetera. So what we're trying to do without explicitly asking, because again, I think that leads to, to too much variance between one person and another. We try and ask them, but not try to, we do ask them the same set of 27 questions that triangulate their thoughts and views on all the experience with their advisor. Okay. Okay. And you mentioned open. That's a, that's a great word. Were there other words along those lines that, that really resonated or popped out for you? Consistent is the other one. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's funny in, in, you know, oftentimes people seek excellence, but excellence tends to have a great variance, right? So excellence mm-hmm. is followed by okay, is followed by excellent again, is followed by not so good. Most people prefer a consistent experience with their advisor because number one, it gives them a certainty that their advisor is working on a plan for them because there is a, a method to their madness. But number two, it makes them feel more fully involved within their financial planning experience. Again, you don't just want to hear from someone when when things are going well. You want to hear from them all the time. You also don't want to have them tell you positive things things all the time about your portfolio, really the, the, the point in a lot of cases for a financial advisor is someone who's not you, right? Someone who's not as emotionally attached to your money, emotionally attached to your dreams as you are. You want to have someone that can be your, your sort of grounding point that says, all right, well, I know the market has been, you know, the last couple of days, the market's been really bumpy and we're moving. Rather than act rash, let's step back. Let's think about what we're, you know, looking for for the long term. Let's talk about, you know, our discussion six months ago when the market was racing and how you were irrationally exuberant then. And let's just sort of level set, make sure we're, we're on pace. And, you know, again, it's supposed to be a trusted advisor, not a money man. Right. And, and, and that's sort of the, the transition, I think, that's happened going from a, a broker, right, someone who facilitates your transactions to an advisor, someone who's interested in your personal financial situation is, is not just kind of, you know, uh, cheap talk. It's, it's a real thing. And, and you know, the, the advisors who are taking the time to system, systematically build a relationship with their clients in a way that, you know, encompasses both good times and bad, those are the ones that are going to get referrals. Those are the ones, you know, you remember people that were there for you when things were not so great, far more than you remember all the people that slap you on the back when things are going well. And, and you know. So, so, so what you're saying for all those investment management geeks out there is that it's more about standard deviation than, than mean. I would, I would say it's more <laughs> well, about that. That was the geekiest joke well, I've ever I, I have heard. A, I have a joke. It's more about semi-standard deviation, right? So, you know, people care more when when they're you know when when the market's going down than they do when it's going yeah. up. 
and ironically, advisors, you know, obviously want to tout their performance when the market's going up, but not when it's going down. But the, the most success you will have as a financial professional is in being there and being accountable and being responsible and being articulate and being clear when things aren't going so well. And, and by the way, there, there's, you know, if you look back to the late 90s, there was a surge in the number of people that were in financial services as advisors in that time. Now, why was that? Because the market was good. The tech boom was taking place. Everyone was doing well. And then when you saw the tech bubble burst in the early 2000s, a lot of people washed out of the industry. They didn't wash out because they became any worse at stock picking. They were never good in the first place. What, what, what happened to them was they, uh, they began to understand that it's not just a science. It's an art and a science. It's one where you don't just pick stocks and build portfolios. You work with people to help understand not only what their goals are, but what their risk tolerance is, how, you know, what their dreams are, what their timeframes are, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a lot of work, frankly. It's easy to sit at your computer and build portfolios. It's hard to talk to someone and try and uncover the things that they're really trying to, to you know, get, get behind. Right. Well, that maybe we can take it down to the advisor's business yep. as well. So there are great uh, benchmarks like this study, and we'll make sure we link to it in, in the show notes for everyone. Um, but do you also think it's important for advisors to ask in a, in a formal way for feedback from their clients? I don't think it's important. I think it's crucial. I think it's one of those oh, things that, that will make or break you. No, and, and <laughs> well, the, the word that you said that that oftentimes goes left out is formal. Yeah. So feedback is just, yeah, I know, hey, how are you doing? Having some sort of formal feedback loop that's constant, that is timely, and that asks questions is crucial. And again, the reason that it needs to be systematic is if you you know, set it up so that feedback loop is every three or six months, you're not trying to time the market so your conversations are only around when things are going well. So it's crucial. Having feedback is, is I would argue, the most important thing to gathering referrals, to building relationships, and to being successful. And I mean, any sort of quick input, I think you, you make an important point because there's, there's no feedback at all. There's informal feedback. Uh, there's formal feedback, but it's a survey once a year. And that, you know what I mean? There's so, so many different ways, but what you're talking about is the continuous loop, which could mean technically getting feedback in different ways, qualitative and quantitative. Any insights for an advisor who doesn't want to become an expert in client feedback on how they can maybe integrate this into their business? Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, by the way, it, it, it doesn't need to be overly mathematic or overly sophisticated. What it does need to be a constant. And what it does need to do is be reflective of your clients, right? So if we think about it, this, this, this is what building the client experience is all about. It's an understanding your client and how they want to communicate with you. And again, the study shows one of the, the real disconnects between financial advisors, clients, and the advisors themselves is the means through which they want to communicate. So again, increasingly people are mobile and they understand that they have the ability through iPad or phone or what have you to, to engage in a lot of ways. So working not just to build that feedback loop, not just to, to make sure it's consistent, but understanding how your client wants to be communicated with. Some people, you know, would prefer get a phone call and really do that feedback loop in person. Some people want to look you eye to eye. Increasingly, and, and this is, I think, just a, a dynamic of people, you know, sort of the millennials and others coming of age, they want to do it, you know, electronically. They want to have either email or text or something that's different. The real key is to work within their framework. And this is particularly important 
important, I would argue, with respect to maintaining your business and referrals in the future, because we've never had a, a time in literally the history of the world like we do now, where one generation is used to communicating and working with their advisor in one way, and their children, the people who are going to be your clients of tomorrow, communicate and see the world in an entirely different way. And if you haven't done the due diligence to build in a feedback process and a feedback loop that allows you not only to understand your existing clients, but your future clients, i.e. their children, you're setting yourself up for a really difficult conversation yeah, yep, in the future. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things, just sort of bringing it back to the whole, you mentioned referrals earlier, and is, and Steve and I, you know, we get into this conversation all the time, is this disconnect between satisfaction and referrals. So we'll find, you know, 80, 90% of clients might be somewhat are very satisfied. And if you're lucky, three to 4% are actually providing referrals. Any just thoughts on on that disconnect? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think the, the important thing is twofold. Number one, where's that disconnect come from? From the client's perspective, it, it, it might be fear right? My advisor's doing well for me. I want to distract them with chasing down other clients. I just want them to keep doing a good job for me. So, you know, and, and, and part of that is, you know, exclusivity where you feel, you know, un unlike referring someone to, you know, the local library, you may think your advisor has a perception of a finite capacity. And, you know, again, you, you, as an advisor, I would argue the, the biggest roadblock to getting those referrals, particularly from satisfied clients is asking. And again, part of that experience and communication is having your clients not just have a good experience with you, but in some ways have an invested interest in your business. They want to see you do well. They want to see you continue to, to um, you know, help them meet their goals. And you need to transition it from them being fearful that you know, you're going to be spread too thin or you're going to you know, not be able to service them in the way they're accustomed to, to having them understand that it's in their best interest to allow you to take on more clients, build your resources, you know, sort of take advantage of what you have, and et cetera. So uh, just to dig into that, because that's something that I hear a lot is, is reluctance on the you know, concern. I shouldn't say reluctance, but concern on the part of clients about an advisor's growth, because that's exactly the equation they do in their head. The more clients that my advisor has, the less, the less access, the less service I'm going to get from them. So are there more specific suggestions that you can give us about how an advisor can address that so that the clients will feel more empowered to make referrals? So that yeah, they'll, I think they'll, they'll get more invested in the advisor's success and make more referrals? No, it's, it's a great question. So the biggest change in the past, obviously, the past 20 years in all of our lives is technology, right? And technology obviously uh, allows for advisors to do more to, 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 to be more accessible, et cetera, et cetera. With that being said, I think the, the real challenge for their is getting their clients to your point to, to understand that, you know, their business isn't, isn't so small that they can't take on another client. And a lot of times, frankly, that, you know, if you think about the way the financial services industry worked for a long time, it was the perception of voodoo that helped its growth, right? So as an advisor, in a lot of ways, it wasn't in your best interest to let your clients know what you were doing because number one, technology hadn't advanced to, you know, allow them to sort of see how the sausage is made. And number two, because of that, there was a perception of magic going on and you sort of didn't want to let them in. Well, the world has changed. So I would argue to answer your question directly, Steve, let the clients understand how your business works. Let them understand all the resources you have. Let them understand how you're building portfolios, how you're doing your research, where you're getting your information. Essentially, allow them to see your scale. 
allow them to see that there's not going to be a sacrifice on their part should they refer to you to another client because the world of resources you have at your fingertips allows you to advise money for lots of people and, and without sacrificing the quality to any any single one. So essentially it's, you know, and, and it can be difficult if you have remote clients that aren't close by. The clients that are, you know, local, and I think most advisors still have a relatively local client base, bring them in, give them not an overview of their financial plan, not an overview of, of um, you know, how you're going to pick better stocks for them. Give them an overview of your business, how you run, how you're structured, who does what, what the responsibilities are, what, what you know, resources they get. Because number one, they're going to be surprised, I think, at the number of people that touch their account which is you know, a very positive thing for, for them to see. But number two, I think they're going to be less daunted by you taking on more clients uh, because they're going to understand that you have the resources to properly manage money for a whole score of people without sacrificing the quality for anyone. It's a, I mean, it's a great idea. And, and I, I particularly like that you got worked voodoo into this, which is, which is, which is wonderful. Um, so I know we're, we're just coming up on time, so I could go on all day with you. This is, this is such a great conversation, but I, I would love to make sure that we get to, you know, the lessons for individual advisors based on what you've seen in the research, based what you've seen in, in your experience. Um, what are some of the things that you think advisors can be doing differently? So they're not only driving deeper satisfaction, but obviously uh, driving growth at the same time. I would argue the the biggest change you can make as an advisor kind of moving forward is don't view yourself as, as managing money for a client. View yourself as managing money in perpetuity for, for a family. And by the way, that's that's the, you know, the goal for all long-lasting financial advisory businesses is obviously to have multi-generational wealth management embedded within their practice. But that's not something that happens by accident. That's something that happens by design. So you need to make sure that you don't just have a communications plan or a, a plan for a client, but rather you have a series of plans for your clients that allow you not just to, again, explain their financial situation, but also better understand their life situation. And ideally, if, if at all possible, bring in that next generation get to know their children, particularly as they're getting through high school and college, et cetera, et cetera. Because though, you know, the, the, the worst situation you can find yourself in is, you know, God forbid one of your clients passes. And the first time you meet their children is when you're trying to, you know, maintain their business. That's just a, a really tough model to, to follow through. So I would argue everybody should view themselves almost as a small endowment or family office, right? You're, you're just sort of taking an interest in the entirety of the family and making sure that, you know, it's the 80-20 rule. 80% of your business is going to come from 20% of your clients. Clients, make sure that you have ring fenced your clients as well as possible, because that's really the long term, uh, you know, way to be successful with with any business, but financial services in particular. Well, that is awesome. Thank you so much for sharing this. It's just a, a really different perspective than we've had, and, and and appreciate the time you've taken today. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay. Thanks so Thanks, much. Kevin. Take care. Hey, folks. Steve again. Thanks for joining us on Becoming Referrable. If you like what you've been hearing please do us a favor and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. You can get all the links, show notes, and other tidbits from these episodes at becomingreferrable.com. You can also get our free report, Three Referral Myths That Limit Your Growth, and connect with our blogs and other resources. So until next time, so long.